Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By the late 1800s, England's formerly pastoral lifestyle had given way to a new era of industrialization. Society moved from horse-drawn buggies to steam-powered trains, from hand-spinning wool to working on assembly lines. But these new jobs weren't always easy to come by. A significant number of young working-class men couldn't find employment in England. Many moved abroad to pursue better professional opportunities. While women also emigrated, a population gap between the sexes began to form. Towards the end of the 19th century, about a third of women aged 25 to 35 were unmarried. By the 1921 census, there were around 1.75 million more women than men in the country. A panic over these so-called surplus women broke out. Marriage was seen as an economic necessity at the time because women had far fewer professional opportunities than men. But many potential brides were still single, and without husbands, some were on the verge of poverty. Desperate for financial security, many women became less discerning about the kinds of partners they'd accept. Gamblers, drinkers, and other men previously deemed unsuitable for marriage now found themselves hot on the market. And before long, one of these men forged a sinister path. He preyed on women who were in search of safety and partnership. He lured them right into his deadly trap. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free, exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the 1910s crimes known as the Brides in the Bath Murders. This week, we'll cover the unusual deaths that stumped law enforcement for years— Next week, we'll dive into the truth behind one of Britain's most infamous killers. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Boo berries. That's Science VS.
New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. In September of 1913, 40-year-old George John Smith met 25-year-old Alice Burnham. The two had a chance encounter and immediately fell for one another. It was a whirlwind romance, and although Alice's family was very hesitant about such a speedy union, the pair was married on November 4, 1913. Alice Burnham was officially Mrs. Smith. And Alice was delighted to be wed. She came from a good family and even had a steady job as a nurse, but she'd nearly given up on the idea of marriage. She was suffering from an illness that author Jane Robbins believes may have been gonorrhea, a sexually transmitted infection that, while common, carried a great deal of stigma. Antibiotics would later prove to be an effective treatment for gonorrhea, but at that time, treatments for the disease had very mixed results. More importantly, this diagnosis meant Alice had had at least one previous sexual partner. But as an older, more worldly gentleman, George Smith wasn't shaken by a common illness or a lack of virginity. Alice was everything he could have wanted in a wife, and he quickly made plans for their honeymoon. George and Alice traveled almost 300 miles to Blackpool, a seaside resort town on England's west coast. They found a local boarding house and made themselves at home, ready to enjoy their first trip as man and wife. But on the evening of December 12, 1913, just three days after George and Alice arrived, the owner of the boarding house noticed something strange and mentioned it to her daughter, Allie. Allie, can you get the tea? Yes, mother. Ah, damn, there's water coming down the wall. (sighs) It must be that Smith couple. I know the wife was hoping for a bath. She probably filled it a bit too full. Ugh, they're going to ruin the floor. Hush, there's the husband coming down now. Mr. Smith, is everything all right? Oh, yes, ma'am. Alice and I stopped by the market earlier today to pick up some eggs. Uh, Could I give you a couple for our breakfast tomorrow? Of course. Are you and your wife enjoying the room? Everything's quite perfect, thank you. I'll be heading back up then. You see, Allie, they're such kind people. No sense in making a fuss about the bath. I wouldn't want them to think I was complaining. Help! Someone call a doctor! <gasps> My lord! Allie, run up and see what's wrong while I call for help. Hurry! Margaret Crossley, the owner of the boarding house, called for the nearest doctor. A local physician arrived swiftly and ran upstairs. He found George cradling a motionless Alice still half in the bath. The doctor pulled Alice out of the tub and tried to resuscitate her, but it was too late. Just one month after her wedding, Alice Smith was dead. The tragedy shocked the entire boarding house. 
But the newly bereaved widower, George Smith, was most brokenhearted of all. As per legal norms, a police officer was dispatched to the scene. The detective questioned George, but with no sign of a struggle, there was little suspicion of foul play. Still in a state of disarray, George gave a statement. Your wife went in for a bath at what time, sir? Just past eight in the evening. Uh, She'd said earlier that she was looking forward to a bath. It's a bit of a luxury for us, you see. Mm Mm-hmm. And then what happened? About 15 minutes later, I went downstairs to see Mrs. Crossley. When I came back up, I I called out to Alice, but she didn't answer, so I... I... It's all right, sir. Take your time. I went to check, and there she was. I, I just don't know what could have happened. Perhaps she fainted. She suffered headaches from time to time, but I, I don't know how that could have led her to... drowning. I'm very sorry for your loss, Mr. Smith. The doctor will conduct a post-mortem, and then it will be up to you to arrange the burial. Do you need anything else? No. I'll just pour myself a whiskey. Thank you, officer. After the autopsy, the doctor concluded that Alice died from accidental drowning caused by a seizure or a fainting spell. It wasn't exactly a satisfactory answer, but it was all they had. And it was a tragic end to the young newlywed's life. Just hours before, she'd been looking forward to a long and happy marriage. Now she was headed to a cheap coffin in a public grave. That's because George apparently hadn't been truthful about his financial situation. Although he claimed to be a man of independent means, his beloved wife received the cheapest possible burial. On Monday, December 15, 1913, Alice Smith was laid to rest. Her funeral was meagerly attended, as Blackpool was hundreds of miles from her hometown. George was joined by Alice's mother and brother, both of whom had been devastated to hear of her death. The owners of the boarding house also attended, deeply shaken by the incident that had taken place under their roof. And they noticed something strange. George didn't wear the customary black clothing to the ceremony. It seemed off, but perhaps George just hadn't packed any black clothes on his trip. After all, he planned to be on a honeymoon, not at a funeral. After the service, the Crossleys, Alice's family, and George Smith went their separate ways. It was a sad ending to an even sadder story. But as it turned out, the tale wasn't over. About a year later, Alice's father, Charles Burnham, settled in to read the paper. He scanned his copy of News of the World, a national outlet that tended to focus on scandalous crimes. It had been a year since his daughter died. Keeping up his weekly routine helped him manage the grief. But he chanced upon an article that brought the pain roaring back. Elizabeth! Elizabeth, come here! What is it, Charles? Read this. Tell me this story isn't strangely familiar. Found dead in bath. Bride's tragic fate on day after wedding. Died accidentally in the bath after an attack of syncope. Why, this sounds like Alice. 
It sounds exactly like Alice. It's precisely the same thing. You don't... you don't think... It says this woman's husband is John Lloyd. It couldn't possibly be the same man our Alice married, could it? Charles and Elizabeth studied the story. There'd always been something off about George and Alice's relationship. In fact, George had secretly hated the man and was pained to see his daughter so enamored with him. Now these coincidences felt too great to ignore. Something terrible had happened to two unsuspecting women. Alice's parents wanted to stop it from happening to anyone else, even if that meant reopening the most painful chapter of their lives. Coming up, Charles Burnham contacts Scotland Yard. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries, for some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. On December 12, 1913, 25-year-old Alice Smith drowned in the bathtub while honeymooning with her new husband, 40-year-old George Smith. There were no signs of struggle or injury, so Alice's death had been ruled an accident. The case was closed, and George Smith left Blackpool a widower. But a little over a year later, Alice's father read an article that reminded him of his daughter's death. Another woman, Margaret Lloyd, died in almost identical fashion. The coincidence was too suspicious to ignore. So in January 1915, the case made its way to Scotland Yard. Ah, Paige, what's this? Letter that came for you. Two suspicious deaths. Boss wants us to look into possible foul play. Interesting. Margaret Lloyd found dead in her bath just one day after her wedding, and a year earlier, Alice Smith nearly the same thing. 
very peculiar. The Smith girl's father sent us two articles. He said the coincidence seems suspicious, but the similarities start and end with circumstance. It's a different man named as the husband in each story, John Lloyd versus George Smith. So I'm not sure- Come on, Paige, let's go. But sir- Something's off here. It's up to us to find out what. 47-year-old Scotland Yard inspector Arthur Neal had been in the game long enough to realize this couldn't be a coincidence. Two different women with two different husbands, but the exact same manner of death. In his mind, there had to be more to the story. So Neal opened a quiet investigation into the death of 38-year-old Margaret Lloyd. She died the night after her wedding in a London boarding house. The police constable noted that when he arrived, Margaret's body was laid out on the floor, still nude. He was shocked that a woman's husband, particularly a grieving one, would show such little concern for his wife's privacy. The same officer examined the bathtub where Margaret died. He told Inspector Neal that due to its shallow size and shape, he couldn't imagine how a person might have drowned in it. Things only got stranger from there. Neil interviewed the undertaker who'd handled Margaret's body and was surprised at how he described the woman's husband. The undertaker claimed John hadn't shed a tear for his wife. He was only concerned about securing the lowest price for her coffin. This all rubbed Neil the wrong way. He continued investigating and soon discovered a very valuable clue. Uh, dreadfully sorry not to meet you at the station, officer, but I've got my hands full here. Not necessary, ma'am. You say you were the landlady for the Lloyds? Yes. They first boarded with me the night of their wedding. In from the city of Bath, I think? Lovely couple. Though I believe the lady Margaret had a fever while she was here. They visited a doctor after they checked in. What about the evening of her death? That was the next day. I drew the lady a bath just before 8 o'clock. I heard her splashing about for a bit. Then the gentleman, John, I heard him playing the harmonium in his room. Nearer my god to thee it was. Went on for 10 minutes. Ah, interesting song. They played that while the Titanic sank, didn't they? That's right. That's why it stuck out. Anyway, a short while later, John called out. He said he'd found his wife drowned in the bath. Oh, a terrible thing. In addition to the information he gathered from Louisa Blatch at the boarding house, Neil also discovered that Margaret had taken out a life insurance policy shortly before her marriage. And one day after she was wed, while on her honeymoon, Margaret had a will drawn up, naming her husband as the sole beneficiary of her estate. In the event of her death, the insurance policy would grant her husband around 700 pounds. At around 25,000 US dollars today, John Lloyd was looking at quite the windfall. Margaret's family had no idea she'd taken out an insurance policy or drawn up a will. In fact, they didn't even realize she was in a relationship with John Lloyd. The romance had been a whirlwind, and they'd gotten married in secret. At the age of 38, any prospect of marriage was attractive, but Margaret had been conned by one false proposal in the past. 
Surely she was wise enough to spot someone else trying to grift her. Inspector Neal wondered if John Lloyd had married his wife with the intention of murdering her and collecting a payout. With the insurance policy and the change to her will, it certainly appeared that way. Neil once again visited the undertaker who'd examined Margaret's body, hoping to find evidence of foul play. But both Margaret's doctor and her undertaker had seen no signs of struggle on her body. They decided that she drowned due to some sort of fainting spell. While this was similar to Alice, who'd supposedly drowned due to fainting or a seizure, there were no clear signs of murder. Inspector Neal had no physical evidence to suggest these deaths were the result of a crime. Nevertheless, he believed the husband in both cases to be the culprit. Neal turned to Alice's father, Charles Burnham, in the hopes that the grieving parent could tell him more about George Smith. Charles didn't just have more information. He had a number of letters, all from George Smith. As it turned out... George had repeatedly demanded a hundred pounds from Alice's family, saying the couple needed it for their new life together. Shortly after Charles relented and paid George, Alice died. Throughout all this, George struck Charles as aggressive, mean, and insincere. It had been a shocking way for a grown man to treat his father-in-law, especially while asking for money. And it wasn't just this behavior that felt suspicious. Neil discovered that George and Alice had taken out a life insurance policy for her just before their wedding. Neil couldn't help but notice the growing similarities between the cases of Alice Smith and Margaret Lloyd. Just like Charles, he began to suspect that George Smith and John Lloyd might actually be the same man. He needed to track the widower down. So, he raced to the Yorkshire Insurance Company and spoke to the manager, Thomas Cooper. Hello, officer. How may I help you? The policy for Margaret Lloyd. Has it been collected yet? Uh, Margaret Lloyd? Uh, Let me see. Um, Well, according to my records, her husband hasn't been by for disbursement yet. Uh, What is this about, if I might ask? Good, good. There might still be time. Mr. Cooper, I believe foul play was involved in Mrs. Lloyd's death. I need to ask you for your cooperation in an investigation for Scotland Yard. Oh, my. Well, certainly I'll do whatever I can to help. If there are any attempts to collect that life insurance policy, you must stall. Do you understand? Uh, yes, officer. Let me check my files. But it will be the husband solicitor who pays out the policy directly. You'll want to speak with Walter Davies. While at the insurance office, Neil also learned that Margaret Lloyd had lied on her policy form. She claimed she had no intention of marriage, which meant she could pay a lower rate. This false statement was likely fed to her by the beneficiary of the policy, John Lloyd. The insurance manager put Neil in touch with John Lloyd's solicitor, Walter Davis, The solicitor agreed to hold off on giving John the payout from his wife's life insurance and offered John's last known address to the officer. With an address in hand, Neil beelined to John Lloyd's dwelling. He reached the location in West London, which was yet another boarding house. 
With his pulse racing, Inspector Neal climbed the stairs upwards towards Lloyd's room. A single door separated him and the man he chased. Neal clasped the doorknob and with a deep breath pushed the door open. It revealed nothing more than an empty room. John Lloyd had already moved on. There was no sign of him anywhere. As it turned out, Lloyd had actually shown up at his solicitor's office while Neil had been out investigating. The solicitor successfully stalled Lloyd by claiming that more paperwork needed to be processed before he could pay out the claim. Lloyd was irritated, but he said he'd be back soon. Inspector Neal saw this as the perfect opportunity to lay a trap. He once again contacted Alice Smith's father, who agreed to stay on call. If the police caught John Lloyd, Charles would confirm whether or not the man was also George Smith. Then, Neal sent a formal request to have Margaret Lloyd's body exhumed. The inspector was confident this case would result in a murder charge, which meant he and his men needed to be ready to re-examine the body as soon as possible. Finally, Neal set up a stakeout. He recruited four other officers to surveil the solicitor's office 24-7. The second John Lloyd arrived to collect the payout, they would pounce. The officers took turns in shifts. It was the last week in January, so the weather was frigid and the men sought refuge in a local pub. The owner allowed them to use a private room as a makeshift base. They rotated, one on the street and the others in the pub. So there was never a suspicious number of officers out in the cold. For over a week, Neil and his men conducted surveillance, all hoping John Lloyd would make good on his promise to return. But the days grew colder, and there was no sign of the man. Finally, on February 1st, 1915, Sergeant Frank Page spotted someone who matched John Lloyd's description entering the solicitor's office. Crackling with anticipation, Inspector Neal slipped out of the pub, joined Page, and waited for John Lloyd to step back onto the street. Excuse me, are you Mr. Lloyd? Yes, that's me. Are you John Lloyd? Yes. What's this all about? Your wife Margaret. She drowned in the bath on your honeymoon almost two months ago. One day after your wedding, Terrible luck, that. And you're also George Smith, whose wife Alice died in the same manner in 1913. Smith? No, I'm not Smith. I don't know what you're talking about. Now leave me alone. So if I arrested you right now and brought you down to the station where Alice Smith's father is waiting, he wouldn't identify you as George Smith, husband to his deceased daughter? All right, yes. My true name is George Smith, and yes, I married two women who both drowned in their baths. This was it. Inspector Neal didn't just have his man, he had a confession. Or so he thought. As the men talked, Neal slowly realized his confrontation might have been too hasty. Their evidence was circumstantial, and while George Smith had changed his name, that wasn't a crime. Neal actually had no idea if, much less how, he'd killed two women. The case that Inspector Neal had chased so doggedly now was threatening to crumble around him, taking his very reputation with it. 
coming up, the real-life Sherlock Holmes rescues the case. And now, back to the story. In January 1915, Scotland Yard Inspector Arthur Neal launched an investigation into a pair of suspicious deaths. Two women had drowned in their baths shortly after getting married, almost one year apart. Convinced the deaths were connected, Neal set out to prove that the husbands in each story, John Lloyd and George Smith, were actually the same man. Setting up a complex stakeout, Neil waited for the man calling himself John Lloyd to collect a life insurance policy for his deceased wife, Margaret. When confronted by police in February of 1915, 41-year-old John Lloyd confessed that he and George Smith were one and the same. Inspector Arthur Neal slapped cuffs on the suspect and hauled him to the station. With Smith in police custody, Neal now faced the task of proving George Smith had murdered his wives without leaving a single mark on their bodies. Unfortunately for Neal, George maintained that the whole thing was a big misunderstanding. I'm telling you, gentlemen, this is a coincidence. It's, it's the irony of fate that both my wives died this way. Uh, perhaps I'd believe you, sir, if you hadn't already been caught lying. About my two names? That was my second wife's doing. When she found out what happened to Alice, well, she suggested I start over, good as new. I'm sure. This all came about because of the insurance, didn't it? I I hadn't even known Margaret had a life insurance policy. Someone sent me papers, so I came to collect the payout. Perhaps this would have come up already if Alice had been insured. Hmm, well... I'm sure you'll have time to get your story straight in the holding cell. Out you go. George Smith was clearly lying about his involvement in his wife's deaths. Neil couldn't be sure that George had murdered the women, but he knew for a fact that Smith misrepresented his involvement in their insurance policies. Neil's team had confirmed that George Smith was the man's real name, and also learned more about the life insurance policy 25-year-old Alice Smith had taken out during their relationship. The policy was worth 500 pounds, or about 18,000 U.S. dollars today. George Smith had also been named as the sole benefactor in her will shortly after their marriage. He'd made a considerable profit after Alice drowned in the bath. Between Margaret and Alice, George had acquired the equivalent of at least $43,000 by today's standards. But even before Alice's death, the man had quite a bit of money in his bank account. It was discovered that George bought an annuity of £1,300, or nearly $50,000 U.S. dollars today. George at times described himself as a man of independent means, and it now seemed he wasn't lying. He certainly had enough cash to provide both of his wives with nicer funerals, but he chose not to. To Inspector Neal, it looked like George Smith's sole goal was to make a profit. Despite the accusations, George continued to assert that the only crime he committed was marrying Margaret under a false name. He was confident there was nothing else the police could get him on. Until Inspector Neal called in his secret weapon legendary pathologist, Bernard Spilsbury. 
38-year-old Spilsbury cut an iconic figure in the early 1900s. He was tall and handsome, with striking features and a growing reputation. Spilsbury had made a name for himself as a doctor and forensic pathologist. Even though he was only as smart as the next doctor, he had a secret weapon. Obsession. He devoted his entire being to every case he worked on, doggedly chasing the truth. Eventually, he would be called the real-life Sherlock Holmes. By the time he took on the George Smith case, he was well-known for securing convictions of high-profile murders that seemed impossible to solve. With both of George's wives initially reported as simple drowning victims, this case also looked daunting. But Spilsbury was up to the task. He joined Inspector Neal at the midnight exhumation of Margaret Lloyd's body in East Finchley Cemetery. Inspector Neal, I would say good to see you, but that seems morbid under these circumstances. Indeed. I thank you for taking the case, Spilsbury, and for coming out at this hour. Grave digging is always done best by lantern light, especially when you're working to keep things quiet. Though that seems to be going less than swimmingly, I saw two front-page stories about the case just today. That's a pity. I hate to drag the names of these poor women through the mud after what that monster did to them. But it can't be helped. These journalists are insatiable. Perhaps some good will come of it. After all, the connection between the two brides would never have been made if Margaret's story hadn't run in national papers. Indeed. I'll find a better mood for myself once Margaret's on your table and we get some answers. Would you mind turning your lantern up a bit? I want to make sure the gravediggers can see. By morning, the diggers had brought Margaret's body to Spilsbury's lab, and he got to work. The corpse had decomposed slightly, but was still in fairly good condition. Margaret had some bruising on one arm but no further marks of violence on her body. Her tongue hadn't been bitten, which could have indicated a fit or struggle, and there was nothing to suggest she'd been poisoned. Margaret was clearly a victim of drowning, but nothing pointed to how George Smith could have been responsible for her death. If he'd held her underwater or hurt her in another way, there should have been evidence. Both Spilsbury and Neil must have harbored a secret fear— Perhaps George's story was true. Maybe his wife's deaths were just tragic coincidences. But there was also nothing in Margaret's autopsy to indicate an underlying condition that would have spontaneously caused her to drown. That meant there was still a mystery afoot. Motivated to dig deeper, the men arranged for Alice Smith's exhumation. She'd been interred for over a year, but they had to try. Spilsbury was met with a waterlogged coffin and a badly decomposed corpse, barely held together by decaying flesh and viscera. He conducted the post-mortem as well as he could and again found no signs of poisoning or other violence on the body. However, he also found no indication of a so-called syncopal attack, the cause of death originally attributed to Alice in 1913. Spilsbury then investigated the bathtub Alice died in. As with Margaret's tub, it was hard to believe that a woman spontaneously drowned in a bath that shallow. 
But again, Neil and Spilsbury had no clues regarding George Smith's involvement in the deaths of his wives. And with public attention growing and more sensational stories about the case being published, the pressure was on. They either needed a break in the case immediately, or they'd be forced to let a potential murderer walk free. Neil and Spilsbury faced impending failure. Then, just a day or two later, a police officer a few miles outside of London noticed something peculiar. Excuse me, officer. Do you have a moment? Of course, Superintendent. Uh, What can I do for you? This headline... Does it seem familiar to you? Two brides found dead in baths, body exhumed in secret midnight ceremony. Hmm. Is that... Is that the... The Bessie Williams case. New bride drowned in her bath on a trip with her husband, Henry Williams, in 1912. Right! That's the one! What's it doing in the paper three years later? And what's this about two brides? That's the thing. This article isn't about Bessie Williams, but the exact same thing that happened to her happened to two others. Sir, that seems mightily suspicious. It does. It makes me wonder if Henry Williams might be the same man as this George Smith fellow. Here, you sit down at the typewriter. We'll send a letter to Inspector Neal. Superintendent Hurd's letter reached Inspector Neal on February 8th, 1915. Just one week later, he confirmed that the husband in the Bessie Williams case was none other than George Smith. Just as with Alice and Margaret, Inspector Neal and Bernard Spilsbury exhumed the woman's body. She'd been dead for two and a half years and was badly decomposed. But even under those conditions, Spilsbury could see that there were no marks of violence on Bessie's body. In other words, a third woman married to George Smith had died in the exact same way. Either George was a remarkably unlucky husband, or police were dealing with a serial killer. Bernard Spilsbury took a closer look at Bessie's original post-mortem report. One tiny detail had been overlooked, and now it jumped out at him. When Bessie's body was pulled from the bath... She'd been clutching a bar of soap. Even in death, it was lodged firmly in her fist. Bernard Spilsbury was a highly experienced investigator. He knew that a body wouldn't react with that kind of intense stiffness unless the death was violent. That meant George Smith hadn't relied on poison, underlying conditions, or any other indirect method of killing his wives. He had physically drowned them quickly and brutally. And that tiny bit of soap was the key that would unlock the mystery. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of The Brides in the Bath. We'll learn more about George Joseph Smith's sordid past and discover how he killed his wives without detection. For more information on George Joseph Smith and the crimes he committed, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jane Robbins' book, The Magnificent Spilsbury and the Case of the Brides in the Bath, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Kayla Westergaard-Dobson, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Ellie Schiff, Laith Walshlager, and Jen Wong. Solved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder, we'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.